I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. which features my guest today on the program, Katie Harkin. Let me tell you a little bit about Katie Harkin. Hailing from Leeds, Katie Harkin was the co-founder of the band Sky Larkin, an outfit she put together with her childhood pal Nestor Matthews while they were attending university. They signed to the London indie Wichita Recordings, which was home to The Cribs, Block Party, Best Coast, and My Morning Jacket, and they put out three great albums, including the 2009 classic, The Golden Spike. Sky Larkin lasted almost 10 years, and while they were at it, Harkin started to get recruited for other projects, like touring with Wild Beasts back in 2011 for their Smother record. When Sky Larkin called it a day, she became a touring member of Slater Kinney. You can actually hear her on the Live in Paris album. And she went on to be a touring member of Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile's band when they toured the Lodicee Lice record. She toured again with Barnett a year later, and soon after, she put out her first solo album under the name Harkin. She put out her second Harkin effort this summer, titled Honeymoon Suite. It's a dreamy, ethereal, and decidedly catchy album. The compositions are textured and nuanced, the instrumentation is layered and rich, and Harkin's vocals float with precision and finesse. Kitty Harkin is one of those people who is never not busy. She's worked with everyone from Waxahachie to the comic Josie Long to the Turner Prize-winning filmmaker Helen Martin. We got her in between all the busyness, and she was just lovely. So here you go, me and Katie Harkin having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
I don't know anybody that feels like they're operating at full capacity right now. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm somewhere safe. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm well, but I don't know anybody that feels like they're their best self right now. Um, and the pressure on people to be creative is is potentially very damaging you know the idea is oh you have so much time now and the the reality is for people you know that time for a lot of musicians is taken up with potentially caring for um sick people being unwell themselves or applying for jobs or having lost jobs so yeah it's a difficult situation for a lot of people and i think it's unfair for people to be expected to monetize their pain in real time. Do you feel that expectation is sort of floating around? It's hard to say. I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of encouragement to be taken from how um, quickly people have adapted in positive ways. And I was discussing this with my girlfriend knows about you know how our families have been zooming you know i think my dad was zooming a school schoolmates from from that he hadn't seen since the 60s you know i, I think our there's definitely been a kind of leap in tech literacy in the last month who someone will measure it at some point i'm sure it feels like we've jumped five years in a month um in that respect the language around the pandemic has expanded and gotten also very specific. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people did you, having... did you see that it literally has that the um, not just figuratively, but the Oxford English Dictionary has made additions outside of its usual schedule, which I think was quarterly, because of the the high frequency of new words being popularized. I didn't know that, but I know that. I made a joke, uh, a friend of mine was, he met a girl online and they're now communicating via Zoom. I said, you're having a Zoomance. Um, Very nice, <laughs> Very nice. I, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I, you know, for me, I, I worry about, like I look at people who are, I figure Bob Dylan can do, not that he has, but Bob Dylan can do a Facebook or a Zoom concert and probably do pretty respectably. Um, but what yeah. about a touring musician? What about somebody who um, makes their living playing with other bands or touring? Or um, and, and I wonder, like, you don't have the same luxury in that particular way. Not that you don't mm -hmm. have a fan base. Um, but have you sort of found online solutions to not be solutions? It, I mean, I just did my first Instagram live video, like, right before talking to you. It's 10 p.m. here and yeah I, I did one with uh, Carrie Brownstein from Slater Kinney she was kind enough to um yeah to to talk to me about the record and it it was incredibly nerve-wracking <laughs> I definitely I got into it in the end but it, it's a it's a different discipline you know performing to a screen and it's it's the reason why being a radio professional is it is people's full-time jobs you know it's performing to an audience that you can't see is not the experience that I have and it's not just a sort of ego massage like there is there is the energy in a room when you play live like anyone that's been to a show knows that as much as anyone that's played a show knows that and 
um, for now that sort of feedback loop of um, creative sustenance of kinds um, has been has been broken in the traditional sense but I do have hopes that this is gonna help retool a lot of things that aren't necessarily positive about live music in the same way that so many other basically the situation we're in any problem that already exists is being made worse by this for everybody so you know it's exposed things like why can't more people work from home um why can't more people have flexible working hours that you could see carrying on into the future being positive um equally you're seeing the reality of musicians lives you know why aren't more venues child friendly um why aren't more venues accessible um does everybody feel safe in a music venue um you know people do feel safe possibly tuning in from home so it it, it just generates so many questions that um yeah we're just starting to comb through them all aren't we we are and and there's also more immediate questions of do you feel safe returning to the stage and putting your health at risk we're we're in this together that's the 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 bottom line for any any action it's why we're all doing what we're doing right now so anything any action that we do um particularly affects everybody else in the whole world in some wild chain reaction so um it's it's for us all to to decide you know we have to we have to be responsible for each other it's very true and i those who listen to the podcast know that my my day job i'm a university professor i teach english and you and i are in the same situation where it's like if you and i get sick um i don't get paid um you don't get paid if you don't play mm -hmm. a show uh, or if you have to cancel mm -hmm. a tour you have to think about your health and i was in a classroom with very sick students from day one when our semester started wow. and I'm not I was on tour in Europe <laughs> you know right right so, so it's uh, yeah it's a very difficult position that you're in and it's a very difficult position that a lot of people are in even within their own homes you know there's differing opinions within family groups there's differing opinions uh, within flat shares with apartment roommates um, so at that point is where we need strong leadership globally yeah um so the the question really it comes to why are we being expected to police ourselves why are we being expected to fall out with our family members when we have disagreements about the interpretation of government guidelines why are they not clear um you know these are these are questions that we should be asking forever for the rest of time you know yes, i agree and hopefully we will um but you know i think about i think about the idea of you know but for a lot of bands that after the show like to do a meet and greet with the fans that mm -hmm. even seems to be something which will have to be different i mean i we you know hour by hour or day by day however you've got to take it that's how we take it and um it doesn't mean that the conversations have to stop like certainly not and you know the ideas will come and we'll talk them through and and work it out but but right now it it seems unreasonable to be planning ahead in those terms and 
irresponsible to be planning ahead in those terms but it doesn't mean that we can't communicate with each other in other ways it doesn't mean that um the problems that exist in the music industry won't be there when we come back you know the the crisis has been for the longest time that musicians can't rely on the sales of recorded music to support the production of recorded music um you know the the industry peaked in 1998 i think and it's yeah. been and Google was founded in 1998. I learned in a pub quiz, which is all I've been doing, <laughs> just quizzing with my friends. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that problem still exists. And the fact that we do like to congregate as a species together in rooms, we always have and continue to do so, um, even when it's not, you know, reasonably possible that's been a life raft for the music industry and it's coasted on the fact that people can make a living from touring. That's what I've done, you know? Um, so it just highlights this, this problem because all of a sudden that one, uh, the one feather in the cap has been, that was left has been taken away. Right. So it's, it really highlights how what a precarious position we were in all along you know that's right the vulnerability of the life of a musician because if you god forbid were to break your hand you'd be mm -hmm. in a situation where you would not be able to make a living for yourself as a touring musician you wouldn't be able to play i've um, had to take three months off because i had a chronic crazy crazy rare nerve inflammation that something like 13 a million people get, or I can't remember, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't play guitar for half of that time. I couldn't play a show for, for three months. And it was, it was brutal. And when that happened, did that make you circumspect or philosophical about your position or? When that happened, I was sick. You know, that's the other thing that we have to remember is that um, people People that are unwell are not, you know, we shouldn't expect them to be generating the problems to get them out of their situation. You know, I can't make a direct comparison, um, but I don't, I wasn't a productive person. I didn't write an album in that time. Like I didn't, you know, the album that I've released, I didn't do any significant work on it in that time period. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Will you tell me about your, your own network, your own community of, let's just go with musicians, then we'll talk about non-musician friends. Have you, have you been having um, conversations with people that are in the industry that are, like with, like with Carrie, for example, who's in a little bit of a different position, mm -hmm. um, but are you, are you in touch with people who are your contemporaries and are you finding solace in those conversations? Absolutely. And that's what draws me to music and to keep coming back to touring is the community that I found in it, you know, growing up and feeling like an outsider and looking for that feeling of connection that I found in the music that I loved. The thing that's pulled me into all of it is, is my music community. So yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes it's just talking nonsense with people that happen to be my friends and, that are musicians that I've worked with and some of it 
has been a little bit more constructive, but genuinely not really. It's all very, um, you know, base rate. How how you doing? Right, right. But there is a kind of shorthand that you guys understand being in similar positions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's you know, like like anybody, I take solace in the support of my peers. And what about your non-musician friends? Are you having the same kind of thing where you're having conversations that are that are meaningful to you? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I I feel like there's not really there's not really a giant distinction in in my mind because the the thing is happening to everyone, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, are you? Tell me about your album. Tell me about the situation around it um and we can sort of we can sort of zoom in on that for a bit the situation around the release of it or yeah yeah well it, it came out today which is very exciting and i was talking to someone else earlier about it and they asked me you know how does it feel and it does feel like i've been living in a space station and I sent a gold record out into space and now other life forms have found it like it always kind of feels like a version of that but it definitely felt like that today I was like I've made contact you know yeah it's exciting actually to talk to you on the day it comes out um was there I mean was there a conversation of shelving it and holding it or, or was that just an intolerable thought to you I mean, honestly, no, you know, we've released it on Hand Mirror, which is the label that I co-founded with my partner last year. So ultimately it was our call anyway, but I, I just couldn't imagine um, cutting off a chain of communication with people right now. But equally, that's a luxury, you know, putting, you know, ending up releasing this on a starting a label so that we could release this in a way that we wanted to ended up being self-determined in a way I couldn't possibly have um anticipated for you know I, I we started the label because we wanted um to have creative control and to be able to uh, create something that could then support other artists in the way that we feel ideally we'd like to be supported but I didn't expect it would be such a instant kind of um I guess I benefit really because there's no chain of command telling us like that doesn't fit in with our projected profit cycle or whatever you know for this quarter you know you look at all the the huge movies getting pushed back and it's uh, it must be must be wild if you've spent five years of your life working on that. Is, is it a certain cathartic experience for you to having it out there now? Definitely. I've, I've been involved in a in records with bands before and stuff that I've written on. It, it does feel like clearing the desktop. It, it really shouldn't. I really should be able to just go full into starting writing something afterwards, but there is, a real feeling of of release uh, in release um so i can i can definitely dine on out on that for a while and there was a series of dates that were planned that you that you just simply can't do 
Yeah. Hi, Glenn and Lena, if you're listening, my wonderful band. I don't expect that you are, but any any chance to say hello to them because um, I miss them so much. That's that's the bottom line for that, you know. That's I love my bandmates. I wanted to hang out in a van with them for an unconscionable amount of time, and it's not going to happen. It's not um, for now. For now, it's not. Uh, it's not impossible that they could be listening. They could be huge fans of the show. We don't know. We don't. <laughs> oh no, they could. I just. I didn't. I didn't want to sound like I was assuming that my bandmates wanted to hear my voice more than they already have done. Um, where are they? Uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're already a band that had, you know, geographical separation. So time together is precious and who knows when we'll be reunited but they've they've been they've been amazing online actually glenn has been teaching herself uh watching tutorials for a lot of 3d rendering and has made a beautiful donut and cup of coffee animation that yeah if you find her on the internet you can see so she's been she's been productive yeah, I always felt like when this is over, if I haven't read the complete works of Charles Dickens, I'll feel like a failure. <laughs> no, I, I honestly haven't. I haven't been able to uh, approach a book yet. I've got friends that have, but yeah, I'm, I'm too, too frazzled. There's too many news breaks interrupting. You know? I know, I know. Now, did you grow up in Leeds? I did, I did. Everything I learned about geography, I learned through bands. So like when I think about, I got really into music deeply, deeply when I was about 14. And yeah. when, I, when I think of Leeds, I automatically think of the wedding present. That's just the first thing I think about. Totally. Um, just emblazoned in my brain. Were you a fan of Mr. Gedge? I, you know, there's a thing about Leeds that makes it different than other Northern cities, I think, that in terms of being that age i remember i'm not specific i can't really remember when i found out about the wedding present but i do remember being in my late teens and hearing gang of four and then you know maybe looking them up online or somehow finding out that they were from leeds and being shocked <laughs> you know i had i had no idea whereas other northern cities like liverpool and manchester you know there's a Beatles museum. You go to Manchester, there's still cardboard cutouts of, you know, Britpop musicians in the windows of record sh shops or whatever. It, maybe not literally, but it feels like they're, they're a lot more, um, they wear their heritage on their sleeve where in Yorkshire, it's a little bit like, oh, what do you want? A medal, you know? <laughs> no one's ashamed, but you don't, want to, you don't want to be boastful, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and what I loved about, and still love about the wedding present is that, his body of work seemed like it was coming from a very specific place. And, you know, you mentioned being an outsider, feeling like an outsider. And I think uh -huh. I did too. And I felt like that the wedding present songs were like songs for outsiders and love, you know, and it really spoke. Yeah. We, we played the festival that they do. Um, I think it's Brighton, um, you know, with my old band and just seeing just saying, you know, how enduring fandom up close is always moving for me when you see people that have, you know, cherished these songs for a long time and they they become part of 
part of their lives you know seeing that happen in, in a room is always moving and yeah that's that's something I miss. Tell me about feeling like an outsider where at what point did you feel that though you recognize that you felt like an outsider not a part of of what was perhaps popular when did you embrace that and feel comfortable with your outsider status? I mean I don't I don't really know if I felt very comfortable about a lot of things until like around the time of releasing this album, you know. Um I we were I'd started a band when I was 18 and my friend Nesta was 15. I was in my first year of uni in London and he was my friend from a, a high school band and he he was on holiday in London with his family and coincidentally staying at a hotel down the road. So I invited him to the student halls where I was living because there was a drum kit in the basement and I was like, oh, we should give it a go. And that was in like the first, uh, we'd call it autumn half term, which I think a, a collection of words you don't use at all. Fall break, what yeah. would you call it? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what, what month, is that in like September? Yeah, like, no, like the first break that you would have once you started college so it's okay. not Christmas it's like the week in the middle I don't we know call it a uh, midterm break there you go the full midterm break of my first term of university um was when was when I started that band Skylarkin that you know we ended up making three records with John Goodmanson in Seattle which is completely unimaginable um from you know we were we were really young yeah so I just, when we started doing that, my ambitions were to get a seven inch single in Jumbo Records in Leeds and to maybe one day play a gig abroad. And we actually ended up, a Swedish promoter found us on MySpace, which tells you when this was. Um, <laughs> and we actually went to Sweden on Ryanair, the European budget airline, uh, before our first single even came out and opened opened for a band which is what happens when there's arts funding that they will fly in uh, unsigned British bands just to be the interesting support act um so yeah thanks Sweden <laughs> and I mean and that must have felt kind of validating it was it was crazy I thought we were pulling the um the heist of the century when they said how many how many uh tickets do you need and there was three of us in the band and so I thought oh I'll ask I'll, I'll really push the boat out and ask for six so we can all bring our girlfriends and which you know is kind of band and sound engineer size usually anyway um so yeah you know that was our bass player's first time on a plane like you know it's unreal and I think the golden spike must have come out in like 2009 so uh, this would I don't, oh it was like January so I think it I think it was January 09 because yeah I think we went to Sweden in 2007 and then the record came out the very start of 09. Just yeah so of, and the record wasn't even out yet that's unbelievable. Yeah uh, no truly like why yeah un, unimaginable. Yeah it's crazy um did you when you first picked up a guitar I don't know how old you were, but is it one of those things where you went, oh yeah, this feels right? Or did you have to work <laughs> into that feeling? Uh, my mum had a, like a nylon string um, guitar around the house and she had some 
books of like English folk songs and a, a Beatles anthology. So my first like performance was when me and my friend Joe Corrado did a, a version of Help in a, the end of term uh, lesson in our geography class. Um, but I, my first electric guitar was something that I saved up for. I had a little box under my bed and I saved my, my pocket money. It was something that I really, I really lusted after. Um, so yeah, when I, when I got it, I was absolutely besotted and it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago, but it was before YouTube. So I remember when I broke a string being absolutely flummoxed and it taking me a really long time to figure out how to get that thing back on. And, you know, now I, there's a, a, a sort of music focused community center in Leeds that I used to teach at. And there was a nine year old kid that came in who taught himself Jimi Hendrix licks off of YouTube. And, you know, it's incredible. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I couldn't figure out how to change a string on my own. <laughs> I remember I was teaching tennis years ago, and this little kid broke his string on his racket, mm -hmm. and he just put the racket in the garbage. And I said, no, 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 you you restring the racket. <laughs> you don't throw it away. <laughs> That's lovely. That is lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I broke the guitar string. I guess I have to throw the guitar away now. Yeah, I did. I don't know. You can stop me if this is not an interesting story, but I did nearly throw away my guitar pedal case on this tour um, that I did with Torres that got um, canceled by the pandemic. But I was, because it was missing one screw that was making the wheel fall off, one screw. But when you are touring and you have to carry something around every day, the fact that you can't wheel it anymore makes it essentially useless when it's so heavy. Um, <laughs> But luckily we were playing at a venue in Christiania, which is like a commune independent part of Copenhagen. It's somehow not part of the city. Um, it's an old military complex. Um, like weed is legal there or not enforced, not prosecuted there. Um, so they had like a swap shop, co-op kind of thrift store, hardware store situation where I could go and find the one word screw that I needed and repair my my thing and, and sail off for another day but you know I was just lucky that happened the one day we played an independent state that had its own commune store you know because you would have probably ditched it because you couldn't keep lugging it around there's just some you know it's like if you're on vacation and you, your suitcase busted in a way that when you're at home you could maybe fix if you've got to put it in a plane you know it's not happening you're gonna throw it away so yeah this especially when I, I was like five weeks into tour already and I was just I was yeah I was gonna throw it in the trash but um Malco the 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 tour manager was like no no, no, no we can you can find a screw for that you can find a screw for that so yeah <laughs> I was glad he taught me down from the ledge well yeah because what would have been the workaround if you'd thrown that away would you have had to <sighs> go buy a whole new other one or, or do without it yeah, I would have just, I would have, I, I, yeah, I would have had to buy another one, which again, is not something you want to do. No. <laughs> ever. But when you're exhausted and something just doesn't work and yeah, it's, am I going to dedicate the one hour of free time I have outside of a van today to go walk in the rain to find a screw? But luckily, I love that shit, so I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, 
the sort of like there there's a part of me that thinks you should keep two of those screws and a little envelope when oh, you, you don't think i haven't you don't think i didn't buy <laughs> multiple ones <laughs> i sound i sound like my dad right now but i feel oh. like that's good advice right that's that was a good oh yeah thing. i'm 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 pretty like as someone who's told a lot as well like I, you know, I feel like I have a famously large suitcase because there's a lot of stuff in there. Like I could, you know, if you need a band-aid, like I have five. Because <laughs> I need five because I will shred myself, you know, it's, it's only through experience. somebody who when you travel on tour have you have you gotten it down to like ninja level where you really are like you're saying really well prepared 
I, I, I feel like there's broadly two categories of touring musician and there's some, there's like one camp where they feel comforted by feeling in control by having refined it to three t-shirts and, and one toothbrush. And as you say, like the, the smallest amount of stuff as possible. Um, and I can totally see there being a comfort in that kind of portability and you know I can I can just run off with my my carry-on and, and that's it and then there's the sort of maximalist camp which I do fall into where I feel I feel comfort from having that extra extra bottle of whatever pr product it is I think I'm not going to be able to get in these countries that I'm going to um, if it's going to, again, save me an hour, the only hour I have free that's not moving in a day so I don't have to go to a pharmacy in a country whose language I don't speak to find this thing, you know? <laughs> right. What is it like to be on tour with somebody who is the complete opposite of you? In other words, like, they're like, do you have a, do you have a oh. whatever? Like, they're a mess. <laughs> I'm sure they're like... Katie, can you move your suitcase so there's more room in the dressing room, please? Um, no, I, I think I think you know, especially the people that I've been lucky enough to tour with. Um, oh, Bones, Courtney Barnett's bass player. He's a master. He is a master light traveler. Um, I'm just like you were talking to me, and a and a vision of his suitcase just popped into my mind. Um, but again, I, I think everyone realizes it's whatever brings you whatever is like your version of a security blanket. And sometimes it's the lightest blanket possible that you can sprint away in. And sometimes it's, yeah, I could, I could just hole up in a hotel room for two weeks and survive, you know? That's funny. I always feel when I travel with people um, based on their level of organization or disarray, it gives me a glimpse into what their house looks like. Oh yeah. No, this isn't, I'm not counting people who, I've been lucky enough not to tour for a really long time with anyone that's like, you know, I haven't toured with anyone that's genuinely disgusting. I, I have been on a tour where there was a member of a band that brought either one or two pairs of underwear, but either way, that's not enough. Um, and I have been in a tour van with another band where a member of the other band didn't have a shower until Italy. And the tour started in the UK. Oh, God. So, you know, when it's bad, it's it's bad. Yes. And that's very diplomatically uh, keeping their anonymity is nice. But I get what you mean. Um, I mean, I'm sure the people who <laughs> realistically, they do that because they want they want the glory of like, I'm punk as fuck. You know, right. <laughs> don't exactly. know if I can swear on your podcast. You but um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, really, I'm. I'm uh, I'm doing them a disservice by not giving them their their punk cred as they see it, you know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of punk bands who did that sort of get in the van thing in America and started in California and drove across country. I mean, usually by the third week, it's you know, it's it's really reached a whole new level of uh, of yeah. punk, uh, you know, of cleanly of a lack of cleanliness. I mean, I did get the nickname Lady Harkin on one tour from my insistence on time for showering and for um, occasionally spending money on edible food. So 
That's, I'm a lady. What can I say? Hey, look. But I mean, you know, self-care is obviously very, very important when you're traveling um, as an artist, because mm -hmm. obviously you, you want to feel your best and you also want to make sure that you are preventing yourself from getting ill. Um, Absolutely. Right. So eating right and staying clean, like those are basic, just basic building blocks to good self-care. Yeah, self -care. and it's, it's hard when you broke, you know, on our first tours um, with, with Skylark and we would say that we were vegetarian because we weren't, none of us were vegetarians, but the meat that we could afford to buy was not great. So when we would be traveling, it's just not, it's just not worth it to take the chances. So we would, we would advance ourselves as, as vegetarian um, from learning the hard way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Are you somebody who um, can keep a level head or do you, do you get stressed out easily or do you, do you find that you are fairly placid and circumspect about situations? I mean, you got to ask people I've been on tour with that question rather than me. Um, you know, I think sometimes Americans think that I'm more level-headed than I am just because I'm British. Um, but that's my, my personal pet theory on that one. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I'm touring with other bands, it's because I want to be useful. I want, you know, I, I wouldn't tour with a band I, I didn't love and want to help them. And, you know, so I try and make myself useful. How is your daily discipline with your instrument? Are you playing a lot? Are you practicing a lot? What, what does it look like right now? No, I wouldn't say that I'm, um, I've never been a kind of athletic musician in that respect. And I know that, you know, and again, there's no wrong way to play an instrument in any respect. I, I definitely come to realize that it takes the place of something kind of meditative in a way I can just go and noodle on guitar for 20 minutes and I've kind of lost track of where I am realistically like if you sh shove me in an MRI machine maybe I'd look similar to somebody that was meditating um but I I don't I seem you know I'm a self-taught guitarist and I see any skill that I can offer to other people being rooted in the fact that I write music and I have developed the skills that I have by hearing songs in my head and trying to replicate them and you know learning the songs of other people certainly. Did you when you decided to take this direction in your life did you have support at home were, you, were your parents did they give you the sort of, their sort of I don't want to say blessing um, <laughs> but but did they did they feel that that was something that they could get behind? I mean I think my parents have known that um, I'm an independently minded person, if you could put it that way. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty stubborn. So I, you know, I think it was reasonable for there to be, you know, a couple of raised eyebrows when I was a teenage girl going to spend all my time in a, a garage with some boys, but <laughs> you know, it all worked out and they're very supportive now. It was really, it was really lovely to, to see them. Um, they, they came to the Slater Kinney show in Manchester and, you know, they've, they've always been wonderfully supportive. As Slater Kinney's sound has developed and evolved, 
um, have you had to also adjust your own because you you, were, you didn't make the records with them, right? You weren't on the record, no. right? No. So when they come with it, the, because their sound has really, um, the evolution of it has been so fascinating and so cool. Um, yeah. Has that presented new challenges for you where you couldn't just come in and do what you always did? You had to learn things in a totally different way? Absolutely. And I think that's part of why I've loved it so much because every time that I've walked into the room with them I haven't known exactly what I was going to play you know um that's what's cool about those records and that you don't listen to them and it's you know sometimes a bit tricky to diagnose exactly what's going on but that's because it's inventive music and having the luxury to be able to wander around and inside other people's records and you know, listen to individual stems of individual tracks that work together as a whole to make the atmosphere of a song is my favorite thing. What was it like to be on stage with a guy like like Hayden Thorpe? But that voice on stage must be something, it's, it's kind of like one of the great wonders of the world. Yeah, Hayden and Tom, both two of my favorite singers of all time, and just both such extraordinary voices. If you haven't listened to Wild Beasts and you don't know what I'm talking about, I would really encourage you to, because I mean, both of them sang in falsetto before it was cool is the first thing I should say, before it was ubiquitous, you know, yeah. now in the top 40. I remember when I first was introduced to them as a band, we were both bands coming up in Leeds that uh, promoters would put together on shows a lot because you know no one really knew what to do with either of us but they knew that people liked us so they just shove us together even though we didn't necessarily sound the same um, and I first heard of Wild Beasts when I was doing some demos in a basement studio with a guy called Ross and I asked what else he'd been working on and he said oh you should check out this band called Wild Beast. The singer sounds like Kate Bush. And that's like, what? You know? <laughs> um, these these Cumbrian, these Cumbrian lads who uh, you know, it was a yeah, it was a real treat harmonizing with with both of them because I previously been the only singer in Skylarkin, so that was my first experience of harmonizing with people outside of church choir. So it was a real treat to to, to be singing with them. Now, for the for the new album, how long was it germinating before you started writing it? I, mean, I think the whole thing has really been a journey of about five years. Wow. Uh, the, the recording is only 16 days towards the end of that. But I didn't tell anybody I was working on it for a really long time because I did have... I, it just needed to be a secret because I didn't want there to be any expectation from myself or from anybody else. And I needed to figure it out for myself um, to the extent that it would have a kind of solidified personality before I could really, really share it. And in thematically, did you find that you were working through things that you've always been sort of thinking about? Were there very specific themes that you were drawn to? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's a very romantic record. Yeah. Which, um, and I also, it's my debut solo album. There's a lot of identity stuff on there. I wanted it to be about the north of England in both the the wildness of the moors and the what it was like growing up in the post-industrial north. Yeah, every single rehearsal space I ever had was some um, old factory, you know, a, a decrepit jewel of the industrial revolution that you know, people, people um, abandon in the north and leave them to the musicians to make terrible noises in. <laughs> Do you think that the English countryside is in many ways kind of a character on the album? You could say that. Are you an English professor? <laughs> I am. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> yep. When you when you write the um, the stage adaptation of the record, I suppose it would have to be right. Um, yeah. I've tipped my hand. Yes. Um, I you know I remember when I it took me a long time to see The Shining. I finally saw it when I was like thirty five. And I was in the video store, which they used to exist. And I was reading the DVD and they said, you know, the hotel is as much a character in this movie as anything. And I watched the movie and I thought, oh, I totally get that. And so I, I always yeah. wonder how a backdrop, you know, like, um, you know, the, the English countryside, how that can appear um, almost like an entity in the work. Well, it's funny that you picked The Shining because I didn't watch that until my mid-twenties it would have been when I was writing this record and living in or I don't know if I was writing by then but I was certainly living in the Peak District National Park and I got the flu and it was a snowstorm and I lived in a cottage with my girlfriend in a village of 900 people and I decided that would be a good time to watch The Shining somehow <laughs> when I was fully delirious with flu. So it was traumatizing. I also another time decided to watch Spirited Away when I had the flu. Oh. And it, I found it so intensely terrifying that I don't know if I could ever watch it again. Um, so I, I always make the mistake when I'm delirious of yeah, I'll finally confront that film that I've been wanting to confront and bad, bad move. Don't you feel that when you're sick, even if you watched like Sesame Street, it would still be terrifying? Quite possibly, quite possibly. Right? Yeah, so no one should feel bad about indulging in any TV right now. You know? Right. No, it's, no. There, it's candy, that's what it's for. It's sweet, sweet candy. It is. And there is a kind of, I don't know if the word is spooky but when you the the sort of um you know there's there is a kind of atmospheric spookiness on the record that i really love thank you was that am i is that a mistake in my ear or is that no 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 i i definitely when i was thinking about the record i i deliberately the drones that are in some of the songs that kind of sit in the mix where like a string section would be are drones because they're representing the, the howling moors. Um, I, I was living in this cottage that was in the bottom of a valley in between two two moors, two big flat plains of 
Heather or nothing, depending on the time of year. So it was it was definitely inspired by that. And the album feels to me very much like a very specific song cycle. It plays it plays in a very novelistic way. The opening, I'm trying to remember. Is the opening "Mist on Glass" or am I remembering mm-hmm. that wrong? Okay, mm-hmm. like "Mist on Glass" feels like the perfect opener. And by the time we get to the end, it's like, I mean, the sequencing is perfect. Did you labor over that, or did it did it reveal itself? I, yes, I did. Thank you very much. I did. Okay, and I, um, I I definitely. Uh, intended there to be a, a kind of day and night feel to it and yeah I'm I'm glad you picked up on that I I'm somebody that likes record sequences so there's a there's an intentionality to it especially when people are buying physical format and flipping the flipping the side you know if you want to listen if you get to love the record and you like one side more than the other and you want to tailor that to your mood that's perfect because when we get to charm and tedium it's been a journey sure has yeah yeah i love it it's a beautiful record i really love it thank you so much thank you there's a there's a a darkness and a beauty to it that i find it to be a a very evocative and transfixing listen thank you That, that that's a wonderful compliment i'm i'm trying to get better at taking a compliment you know, really, really taking it um, and not, not deflecting too much. But I'm glad that you felt that with Charm and Tedium. And there is a kind of disintegration in a way of the record because I had my collaborators, very, very able collaborators, uh, Jen Wasner and Stella Mosgawa on bass and drums respectively. And then as the record progresses, there are a few songs that are uh, without them but still a lot of instrumentation and then by the time you get to charm and tedium i tried to arrange that song so many times and it's the one that nearly didn't make it because i was kind of worried i had demo demo itis it and in the end i stood by john agnello who i'd met working on a waxahachie record with him i just stood next to him in front of the the desk in the control room with a guitar and a microphone and played that because even the point of recording the guitar separately from the vocals just felt really phony and overcooked so it felt like the only place that song could be would be at the end was there ever a moment where you thought sun stay with me might be the closer um, <laughs> Probably, if you look at the emails that I sent to Paul <laughs> and my manager about the infinite shuffles of of playlists, but probably, I mean, probably there was a, a there may have been a version where, again, I'd there was going to be flutes, there was there was going to be so much, and then I just I just culled it. I mean, sometimes you just have to make decisions. I remember hearing that Kirsty McCall, um, they were having a really difficult time sequencing the Joshua Tree, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And Steve Lillywhite had, I think still, he was mixing it. I, I can't remember, but anyway, his wife Kirst, at the time, Kirsty McCall, um, from Fairytale of New, of, of, uh, yeah, New York, and absolutely. of course her own brilliant, brilliant solo career. Sadly, yeah, sadly no longer with us. Oh, I mean, just one of my all-time favorites. I, and yes, it's yeah. 
terrible. But she ended up secret. She ended up sequencing that record. And Bono, I think, said to her, "How did you do it?" And she said, "Well, I picked my favorite song first, and my, my second, <laughs> favorite song second. And it's kind of like sometimes you just have to do it." Yeah, I mean, there is there is an argument for having collaborators, and doing a solo record has made me more acutely aware of that than than ever. You know. When you when you said that you weren't you're trying to get better at taking compliments, what what does it look like when you're not good at taking a compliment? Being a British person, probably. <laughs> you know, we're we're not very good at um at that. I I don't think there's there's also you know, having spent a lot of time around Americans and in, in the states, there's a there's a kind of value valuing of um a recognition of of failure in america in a way that's very positive you know it's a you tried rather than oh that didn't go so well we'll not talk about it ever which feels like the british way um so i, I feel like that aspect of of american ambition is is inspiring in that you know oh you you gave it a go buddy good job <laughs> rather than um rather than a kind of british perma embarrassment you know yeah and the the argument against americans is that everybody gets recognized so after a while you can be kind of mediocre and feel that you're a champion sure sure we're all you know i'm a millennial we're all helicopter parented or whatever uh so yeah trying to find my transatlantic perfect median personality is an ongoing ongoing goal well you have made one of my favorite albums of the year and thank you i love it and i i've been listening to you i got my the sky larkin record back in 2009 and i've followed your work since then and i just it's a, a treat to talk to you and you're so kind to talk to me right after the frazzling experience of your first instagram <laughs> <laughs> no this has been this has been really lovely um that was it was very heartening to see how many people tuned in but i think because i haven't really done anything to a deadline for a few weeks now like a definite deadline that can't move by a couple of minutes realistically um yeah that was uh that was more stressful than i thought but equally what? it's nice to see my friend so well yeah, yeah. well yeah. i hope this experience was not stressful at all no this has been really pleasant and i'm so I'm so grateful that you listened to the record so closely because I've always been grateful for the power of music to connect people remotely. And now I feel more distant than ever from people. It's, it's just, I'm just so grateful for it, you know? Well, your music is the connective tissue and it's, it's connecting us uh, all over the globe to you and um, congratulations. And Let's hope for let's hope for positive things in the future. And in the meantime, just keep going because you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your uh, support and for supporting artists at this time when it's hard for everyone. And thank you to the NHS and all the key workers keeping us all safe.
Larkin. Such a nice person. I really enjoyed that conversation. We will have her back. Um, we had spoken a while back. This interview uh, took place when her first album came out. So that's the album we were talking about. But I thought it was an important interview to revisit because um, there's some weird pandemic-y stuff happening that might find, and we're already seeing it, artists having to cancel tours again, cancel shows again, cancel appearances again. So this conversation felt um, very evergreen to me. And I thought it was important to get it out there, have you guys hear uh, the struggle that artists have to go through, the decisions that have to be made, and those sort of uh, last-minute clutch um, you know, game-time calls that they have to uh, find themselves making in order to keep themselves and their fans safe. And right now, um, you know, our conversation was kind of in the middle of the pandemic – the first time around where it was like, what's going to happen? Um, and then things seemed to get a little restored, uh, you know, a few months later. But here we are facing yet another potential problem with all these new variants and artists. You know, we're seeing bands now uh, going through what they went through a while back, pulling shows. And that is a huge financial cost. I mean, for us as the fans, we go, oh, it sucks. We're not going to see our favorite band. But it's like, yeah, that favorite band is trying to figure out how to put food on the table. So it's a little harder for them uh, than it is for us. Anyway, important conversation. Katie has put out two miraculous albums, um, the self-titled Harkin album and Honeymoon Suite, which came out a few months ago and is just fantastic. So here's how you keep up with Katie. Visit handmirror.bandcamp.com. That's where you can pick up Katie's music. She's also a great follow on Instagram. At Harkathon is where you need to go to find her on that apparatus. H-A-R-K-A-T-H-O-N. As for me, alexgreenonline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. Follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Or just email me, editor, at stereoembersmagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends near and far about our show. Let's close the program with a longer listen to Katie Harkin's new track, Here Again. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.